All right, you should be there in your Bible or on your device so you can follow along. I encourage that because I believe that the Lord wants to speak to you personally from his word. Uh, I've got some things I'm going to say, obviously, but um, the Lord can speak to you by the, if you're a Christian, the spirit indwells you. Plus, we believe that our gathering is the temple of the Holy Spirit as well. So Isaiah chapter 10, we looked at verses 1 through 4 last week at the end of our study. So we're in verse 5 through 34. The topic, we are afforded a behind-the-scenes look at God's rule over Gentile nations of the earth and his plan to save them through the witness of his nation, Israel. The title of the message, All Nations Under God, Illuminated with Liberty and Jesus for All. Let's pray. Father, we appreciate and love you. Uh, We're grateful, Lord, for the measure of health and strength that you've given us. Uh, We're here today, a unique gathering. There's never been a group like this before, and there never will again, Lord, in terms of the uh, the, uh, the exact people who are here in this room and on this campus and the place that we're each at in our walk with you. It's exciting, Lord, because uh, you want to use us to minister one to another. And of course, Lord, we sit under the teaching of your word and your word, Lord, is powerful. It, it accomplishes purposes that we aren't even aware of sometimes. Uh, it meets needs that we don't even think we have. And so, Lord, we pray that as we work through this old text, Isaiah, that it would come alive to us, that we would see, Lord, that you are still the God over the nations, uh, our nation and all the nations of the world uh, in relation to your great nation, Israel. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The answer is the British Empire. The question, what was the largest empire the world has ever seen? In 1821, the Caledonian Mercury wrote of the British Empire, On her dominions the sun never sets. Before his evening rays leave the spires of Quebec, his morning beams have shone three hours on Port Jackson, and while sinking from the waters of Lake Superior, his eye opens upon the mouth of the Ganges. You'll be excited to know that occupying 21st place on the list of world empires was the second Portuguese empire. God bless you, Portuguese. The Dutch made the top 100, but they were down at 71. Numbers don't lie. Uh, I did a quick Bible concordance check for the words British, Britain, England. Nothing there. There is quite a bit of information in the Bible about other world empires like Egypt and Assyria, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Why those? Well, those were the nations that most affected the history of Israel. The noun Israel occurs in the Bible over 2,500 times. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, anyone who reads the Bible will soon realize that Israel is the centerpiece of divine prophetic activity. In the 8th century, Assyria was the world power, but they were not the real power. God is sovereign over all the nations of the earth. We read in Psalm 47, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The Lord had a work to accomplish in Jerusalem, and he chose Assyria to do it. I'll organize my comments around two points. The uh, nations you fear answer to the Lord, and the nation God favors will turn to the Lord. Let's take a look at the nation that we might fear in verses 5 through 19. October 1962, 
Cuban Missile Crisis. I was seven years old at the time, and it was the first time I think I realized that the human race had the capability of uh, ending itself, of species annihilation. It didn't help that every day we were having duck and cover drills in elementary school. Anybody do, do they still do duck and cover? Duck and cover is important because when you're under your desk, nuclear fallout can't find you. (laughs) Then my two older brothers were trying to do a DIY uh, 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 shelter, like a fallout shelter in the backyard. And I thought, we're just going to dig a hole or is it a grave or what are we doing? You know, so, I mean, it was pretty terrifying. Do you ever wonder where nations originated? Well, they originated at the Tower of Babel in a rebellion against God. These guys uh, were supposed to wander around, but they said, no, we're going to stop here and settle down and we're going to build this tower. Uh, the technical word for it is a ziggurat. And, uh, they, you know, they weren't trying to build the stairway to heaven before Led Zeppelin came on the scene. I mean, they were building a tower of reasonable height from which they could worship other gods. God said, let's go down and mix up their language. God did that, and humanity was separated into nations and scattered. This Babel incident in the 11th chapter of Genesis explains how and why the nations that are listed in Genesis chapter 10 came into being. And so if you're reading Genesis chapter 10, there's a table of the nations. And when you get done with that, you think, well, where did the nations come from? God says, oh, I'll tell you. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. This is further explored in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, where we read, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Same deal. This is when the nations were formed and God split everything up. But here we learn that the sons of God were involved That is a designation for supernatural persons. Uh, They exist in that unseen realm. God put certain supernaturals in charge of the various nations of the world. When he said, let us go down and confound their language, it may have been a conversation within the Trinity. We are Trinitarian. We believe that God is one God existing in three persons, not three gods, just one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, So it could have been an internal conversation that way. Or God may have been talking to these other supernatural beings who would be over the nations. And they appear many, many times, especially in the Old Testament. And when they do, we like to point them out. There's an example of such a personage in the book of Daniel. The angel Gabriel was dispatched to deliver the incredible end-time prophecy of the 70 weeks to Daniel, who was in captivity in Babylon at the time. On his way, Gabriel was hindered by a supernatural being that he called the Prince of Persia. And they, uh, he, he was powerful enough to stop Gabriel until Gabriel got help, and then he could continue on his way. And so God has put certain supernatural beings in charge of the nations. Doesn't mean that they're doing everything God wants him to do, uh, them to do, but uh, it, it tells you a little bit about what's happening. God would begin for himself a brand new nation that never existed before. In the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 12, God calls Abraham, his name is Abram at the time, 
And he tells him that he's going to be the father of this new nation. So table of nations, here's how we became nations, new nation Israel that is going to be the centerpiece of God's bringing Jesus into the world and sharing the good news that uh, the world is going to be restored and people can be redeemed. Israel had at least these two missions. In Isaiah 42, we're going to read, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Then in Romans chapter 9 in the New Testament, we read, from Israel, according to the flesh, Jesus came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. So the Savior who was promised to mankind in the Garden of Eden would come through the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations. This is what history is about. Uh, And this is why those uh, nations that are closest to and had the most to do with Israel are prominent in the Bible. And we're scratching our heads to wonder, where where are we in the Bible? Uh, Well, we're a Gentile nation. We might be a great nation by some standards. We may not be. That's, you know, we'll see. Uh, But we are one of the Gentile nations uh, that, uh, you know, God wants to see saved and accomplish his purposes. So that all brings us up to the 8th century and the Assyrian Empire. Verse 5, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. If you practice corporal punishment on your kiddos, you no doubt have a special spanking implement somewhere prominent in your home where you can just nod at it and strike fear into their little hearts. We called ours a panking poon, uh, but, uh, you know, the spanking spoon, it took a, a lighthearted approach to it, uh, although it many times was in service. Uh, how do you spank a nation? Well, you spank them with another nation. And so God employed Assyria to discipline his sons and daughters. Assyria, however, exceeded the boundaries that God had set. And so that's why these verses begin, woe to Assyria. And so verse 6 I will send him against an ungodly nation. He's speaking of his uh, people, Israel, and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Uh, This was the spanking God ordered for ungodly Israel, the northern kingdom whose capital was Samaria. But verse 7, yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations, meaning many nations. The king of Assyria decided, apart from the Lord, that he was going to conquer other nations too. And so he had this assignment from God, but he went beyond it and conquered other nations and city-states and was going to conquer Israel and then come down to Judah and conquer the southern kingdom. And God said, no, that's not at all going to happen. The Assyrians, by the way, knew that they were called by God to be used by God. Because later on, we're going to see at the future siege of Jerusalem, they would taunt Israel by saying, have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, that's not exactly what the Lord said, but the Assyrians knew they had a knowledge that they were being used by the God of Israel to uh, overcome the northern kingdom. It's just that they uh, had lust for power and they went beyond God's boundaries. For example, verse 8, for he, the king of Assyria, says, are not my princes kings? 
If your princes are kings, what does that make you? The king of kings. And so he all of a sudden decided, I'm the king of kings. I'm the greatest man on earth. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon would have a moment like that as well. Uh, although God at that time, he says, guess what, Nebi? You're going to go and live like a beast in, uh, you know, for, I think, was it seven years? And uh, eat grass and stuff like that. And so not smoke grass, eat grass. Verse 9, is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? These are all cities or countries in a geographical order that the Assyrians conquered on their way down towards Judah. One by one they fell. It seemed like the Assyrians, humanly speaking, could not be stopped. Verse 10, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria... As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not also do to Jerusalem and her idols? Back in those days, the more idols, the more pagan gods you worship, the better. And it was always, my God is better than your God. And so the Assyrian king is saying, hey, our gods have beaten all the gods of all these other people. Then we got to Israel, and they only have one God. How hard is that going to be? And they defeated Israel in the north, and they thought, well, Judah worships that same God, and so what's he going to do to help them? Quite a bit, actually. But, uh, and so he's just getting totally inflated with pride. He's called haughty later in this chapter, and so um, he's definitely out of bounds. He says in verse 12, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. God would stop the Assyrians from conquering Jerusalem and he would punish them. We'll see how in a moment. Verse 13, for he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found uh, like a nest, the riches of the people. And as one gathers the eggs that are left in it, I have gathered all the earth. There is no one who moved his wing, nor opened his mouth with even a peep. Wow. You, you know this guy's headed for a big fall, right? I mean, this can't last. Really, it was all you? God is always behind the scenes orchestrating things, even when nations go beyond uh, what God has set for them. There are stories about conquerors like Alexander the Great and Constantine, who received direct signs or uh, words from the Lord. Uh, In the book of uh, uh, Isaiah here, we're going to meet Cyrus uh, in a little while. He would be a future king of Persia, mentioned more than 30 times in the Bible. Uh, His interaction with the Jews is prophesied more than 150 years before his rule. His name's in the Bible. Say Cyrus is going to come and he's going to let you out of the captivity you're in, back into the land, And that is what happened. And so critics come and they say, then Isaiah must have been written after it happened and they're just acting like it's a prophecy. That's not true. It was a prophecy. And so, but the point I'm trying to make is God seems to speak to these pagan leaders sometimes. I think it was Abimelech maybe, or one of those guys in the Old Testament who, uh, you know, Abraham said, hey, uh, Sarah, you're really beautiful. I mean, you're gorgeous. They're going to kill me for you. So to say that you're my sister. So the guy said, hey, that's your sister. Well, I'm taking her into my harem then since you guys aren't married. And God appears to him in a dream. And he says, ah, you're dead. You're a dead man. 
And so I love it. God appears to these. I wonder how often this happens in the modern world, right? It, it, it must, or it could. We always think about, oh, these are ancient people who are like doofuses. And, you know, God, I mean, like cavemen. No, they're in many ways a lot smarter than we were. You, you figure some of the things out that Archimedes figured out or Galileo without what we have today, without a computer. We don't even have to memorize. I wish I had lived in your generation because you don't have to memorize the, the atomic chart anymore, right? The elements. Now, why bother when it's on a computer or it's on, oh, here it is right here in my watch, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, God spoke to the Assyrians and he speaks to a lot of nations. Verse 15, shall the axe boast against itself uh, or rather itself against him who chops with it or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift it up as if it were not wood. A lot of common expressions can be traced to the Bible. I don't think this is one of them, but essentially what God says to the Assyrians here is, you're a tool. <laughs> right? He mentions, he mentions the axe and the saw and the rod, and he says that you are the axe, the saw, and the rod. You are the tool in my hand. You, you, you can't lift yourself. What is wrong with you people? God utilizes Gentile nations to push forward his salvation agenda. It doesn't mean they always do as he wishes. And you pause and you say, what? Wait a minute. What, what did you just say? I thought God was sovereign. Well, of course God is sovereign, but we need to define what that means. There is no one single definition of the sovereignty of God that uh, all theologians would agree with. In fact, that definition usually comes out of their theology. Because they think a certain way, then this is what the sovereignty of God means. We here believe that in God's sovereignty, God has granted mankind free will. And this is the big argument. The debate is whether there is any room for genuine free will in the way God exercises his sovereignty. Well, it couldn't be clearer in this passage, not to me anyway. The Assyrians exercised free will because they exceeded God's directives, and God dealt with them accordingly. None of that interrupted God's plan or thwarted his will. And so I think you have to look at, the way I look at it, you know, is that God is so sovereign that he is able to account for man's free will. It it falls under his sovereignty. The other viewpoint, I mean, there's lots of viewpoints, but the other viewpoint, the popular one, is that God is so sovereign that nothing can happen that isn't meticulously determined ahead of time, or God is no longer sovereign. And so, essentially, what you end up with then is God creating Adam and Eve uh, to sin so that he could save them and a few of their offspring and damn the rest of the human race to hell, and at the end of it say, how glorious is that? And so we, you know, the Bible says that we were created in the image of God and God is a free will being and we are free will as well. And there's all kinds of arguments about what kind of free will and how limited it is and all that, but uh, God is sovereign enough to overcome mankind's going beyond his boundaries and still accomplish his purposes. And so God said, somehow he said to the Assyrians, I'm going to use you as a tool in my hand to discipline my people. And then the Assyrian said, I'm the king of kings. I'm going to kill everyone now. And God said, look, I'm going to let you do some things, but you're going to stop at Jerusalem. 
and you're going to get wiped out there, and then later on you're going to get wiped out by Babylon. And so that's what's going on. J. Alec Moitier wrote, This passage asserts a philosophy of history, how the historical facts arise from hidden supernatural causes, and how the human actors are the hinges on which history outwardly turns, are themselves personal and responsible agents within a sovereignly ordained and exactly tuned moral system. Now I'm going to read verses 16 through 19 in the International Standard Version. I think it reads a little bit easier. Therefore, the Lord God of the heavenly armies will send a wasting disease among Assyria's sturdy warriors, and under its glory a conflagration will be kindled like a blazing bonfire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and its holy one a flame, and it will burn and consume Assyria's thorns and briars in a single day. The splendor of its forest and its fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and Assyria will be as when a dying man wastes away. What survives of the trees in his forest will be so few that a child can count them. This is metaphorical in one sense. The Assyrians are compared to thorns and briars and trees set ablaze to burn in a single day, so much so that a child just learning his numbers can count them. There'll be uh, the soldiers that would be left. What actually happened is that single day was a single night in 701 BC when the Bible records that 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were encamped around Jerusalem to siege it died in one night overnight. And when they, I guess they blew the bugle the next morning, nobody appeared at Reveille because they were all dead in their tents. And the Assyrians decided we should probably just retreat at this point. And then, as I said earlier, Assyria would fall to the mighty Babylonian Empire uh, and, you know, get wiped out that way. And so God's got the nations under control. So what nations do we fear? Well, perhaps you saw the photo of China's Xi Jinping shaking hands with Vladimir Putin. It's actually pretty terrifying when you think about China and Russia together. It could have only been more terrifying if Putin had his shirt off and we could see the manliness of the Russian bear. Uh, we joke about it, but uh, you know, people are really, to say that people are worried about this is beyond, is a super understatement, I guess. Then the accompanying article said they plan to, and I quote, stand guard over the world order under the new friendship of theirs without limits. And so China and Russia, in an alliance, in a friendship without limits, standing guard over a new world order, This is trouble. This is a problem. And in one sense, people are rightfully afraid. But the Lord is here telling us, you as a Christian, he says, don't fear them. I've set limits to what they can do. And uh, if they exceed them, they're going to be punished. Could it affect us negatively? Of course. But we have to see the big picture the way Isaiah did and know that the... Christians are going to survive and thrive. And so nobody can promise that, you know, there aren't troublesome times ahead. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not excited that Russia and China are friends. Uh, I, I hope they have a breakup soon, you know. Uh, but, um, you know, you're Vladimir Putin and you can't... I, I wonder, the, I wish you could see behind the scenes right now of what's going on, right? Because Russia cannot defeat Ukraine, right? I mean, that seems obvious, and that is such an embarrassment. I mean, you know, that would be like, you know, I don't even know what it would be like. 
But it's super embarrassing. And now they, they make an alliance with China to strengthen themselves. But now you've got these two superpowers. And, uh, you know, it, it's scary. But we're not afraid because God is the God of nations. And again, it doesn't mean he is causing them to do all these things right. If you want to take that picture of sovereignty, they say, well, you know, God's making them do these things. No, they have free will. God has, you know, he's got supernatural beings who are trying to get them to go the right way, but they don't have to. But we don't fear. Jesus conquers our fears and we share him with the unsaved. Now, if you're not a saved person, now you're, you should be afraid, and not of China or of Russia, but that you're going to die in your sins and, and be lost for eternity. There's no second chance after death. And so if you're not a believer, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He came as God in human flesh, allowed himself to be crucified to take your place uh, so that he could take your sin and give you his righteousness. A.W. Tozer explains it like this. He says, the only sin Jesus ever had was yours. And the only righteousness we can ever have is his. See, we can't work our way to heaven. We can't get there by deeds. But the Lord can give us righteousness that, uh, you know, is like the golden ticket that gets us in because he took our sin. And that's the exchange. Sometimes in the Bible, it's explained like clothing. We come with filthy rags. Jesus has a beautiful white robe of righteousness. He gives us his robe, we take, he, and he takes upon us his rags. Uh, takes upon himself his, our rags, and therefore we are made right for heaven. And so uh, you need to be born again. If you've never come to the Lord, you need to repent of your sins and be born again. The nation God favors will turn to the Lord. History is the progressive development and implementation of God's plan of redeeming mankind and restoring creation. God's preservation of the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem are the filter through which all of history needs to be interpreted. Uh, that, that is where the action has always and will always be. Uh, and so we need to be aware of that. Verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Judah had signed a treaty with the Assyrians. We read that earlier in this, cha- in this book in an attempt to solve her problems God says, you, you need no one beyond me. And this is just a lesson for us to tuck away. When you have problems of any kind, your first source and solve is Jesus Christ. All right? It's, it's not uh, whatever you might think it is. Uh, he can provide what you need. And usually what you need isn't what you think you need. Uh, you know, and so people come in with all kinds of problems and we say, hey, you need Jesus Christ. How is Jesus going to help me with this or that or the other thing? Then you get saved and all those other things fall into place. I, I wish I had time to tell you this morning, but you just have to take my word for it. And a lot of you have the same testimony. You had a lot of problems, terrible, overwhelming problems. And then Jesus came into your life and then they were gone. They weren't problems anymore because he dealt with them. And so he really is the answer. Uh, and, and you have to have that faith to believe that. And so, verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. 
God promised Abraham that his offspring would be as the sand of the seashore. No matter how bleak things look for Israel, there will always be a remnant from which this promise is fulfilled. I mean, what other people, I know there's, you know, people say, oh, other nations have had genocide. Sure, and that's a terrible thing, but what other people group has been so hated and despised by all the nations of the world for so long than Israel? And the Lord says, yeah, there will always be a remnant because I am going to save Israel in the last days. God promised Abraham that they would be as the sand of the sea, and they will be. Verse 23, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the middle of all the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in her destruction. It was too late to avoid their spanking, but God would reign in the Assyrians from conquering Judah. Verse 26, and the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. Now, this is referring to Gideon killing two princes of Midian, uh, in delivering Israel from bondage. And then there's this, uh, the rod on the sea, that's the Moses uh, holding the staff of God on the Red Sea and then pulling it back while the uh, Egyptian army is destroyed. And what God is saying is, hey, I am the same yesterday and today and forever. If I saved you before, I can save you again. And I will. You just need to trust me. Uh, verse 27, and it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. How can a yoke be destroyed because of anointing oil? Well, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so when we're connected to Jesus, he says, it's an easy time for you because I'm doing all the heavy lifting. At the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus read from Isaiah 62 which describes the anointed ministry of the Messiah. And then he told the listeners that he was that person. And so that's how a yoke is lifted with the anointing, is that when we come to know the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, then he lifts the burden of sin off of us. That weight is gone and we can worship as we were intended to do. Now, rather than struggle through and butchering the pronunciation in verses 28 through 31, let me just say that it's a list of cities on your way to Jerusalem. And then in verse 32, it says, as yet he will remain, the Assyrian, that is, at Nob that day, he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. You can read the taunts and threats that the Assyrians threw at the Jews in chapter 36. Verse 33, behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. The northern kingdom of Israel had ceased to exist following the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians. Judah was going to survive their onslaught with the help of the angel of the Lord slaughtering their encamped army. And so this is a metaphor uh, comparing the Assyrians and the soldiers and the army to trees and and briars and such. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to wipe them out when they get to Jerusalem. Don't worry about it because I I don't want them down there. I've got other plans for Jerusalem. There's something else going on in this chapter that's pretty exciting. 
If you look back to verse 24, it says, do not be afraid of the Assyrian, as if it was just one person. Some scholars consider the king of Assyria a type of the future Antichrist. They list it as one of his names, along with, and these are all names of the Antichrist in Scripture, the beast, the man of sin, one of my favorites, the big mouth, the little horn, the insolent king, the prince who is to come, the one who makes desolate, the despicable person, the strong-willed king, the worthless shepherd, the man of lawlessness, son of destruction, the son of perdition. There's a few more, I'm sure. The expression in that day, verse 20, looks beyond the time of the Assyrian Empire to the prophetic future. The Assyrian designated himself the king of kings. Of course, Jesus is the king of kings, but in the future time of Jacob's trouble, the Antichrist will claim a title like that, and he will demand his subjects worship him as God. Judah signed a treaty with the Assyrian, so will Israel sign a treaty with the Antichrist. It is that Antichrist accord that marks the beginning of the seven years of trouble. The Assyrian meted out God's discipline upon the Jews. The Antichrist will unleash a persecution against them like the world has never known. Its purpose is to turn their hearts to God. A remnant survived in the 8th and 7th centuries, and a remnant will survive the Antichrist campaign of terror as well. The Bible says in a couple of places that two-thirds of the Jews alive during that time will be killed, but one-third will survive, and they will greet Jesus Christ when he returns in his second coming as their Messiah. Again from Dr. Fruchtenbaum, as a nation, Israel is indestructible. So what if the Assyrians were coming? So what if there was going to be massive destruction? Nothing will destroy God's promises and prevent Israel's survival. Otherwise, there would be no final restoration. On the basis of the promise of a final restoration, the remnant should not be afraid. Israel will survive every invasion sent against her. You realize modern Israel has fought seven wars since being established in the land. The first one was the day after the British pulled out. The Arab nations around her thought that she would be easily overcome, and that didn't happen. And you know what? In all of those wars, there are miraculous stories of God aiding them in their victory. Uh, it's, it's incredible, really. It's, 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 it's stuff right out of the Old Testament in terms of the testimony of enemies as well as Israelites who aren't saved. It's not that it's a bunch of Christians trying to, uh, you know, make things up. These are just Israeli soldiers and, and, and all, and, and enemy soldiers saying, hey, I saw a giant angel, or I thought there were a hundred tanks when there were one. And I mean, there's a million stories like that. God separated the people at Babel into nations. Then he began another special nation, Israel. Did you know that there's another fairly recent nation that is also special to God? The Apostle Peter said the church is, and I quote, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. We are a holy nation within a nation, the United States. Why are we here? Well, Peter goes on to say that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We expect the nations to rage, according to Psalm 2, the kings of the earth to set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against Jesus Christ and, of course, those who love him. What is our 
uh, mission, really, within this nation. We are to conduct ourselves, this again from 1 Peter, we are to conduct ourselves as sojourners and pilgrims, abstaining from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they do speak against us as evildoers, they may, by our good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so, uh, you know, there's people who are afraid. What's happening? China, Russia, the world's falling apart. Our own leadership seems weak. What's going on? And they say, well, what should we be doing? Well, Peter says, that's, yeah, there's going to be nations that are going to rage against you. They hate God. They hate Jesus. They hate you. Here's what God wants you to do. And essentially, in three words, it's be a Christian. Be a Christian. Uh, conduct yourself as Christians should at work, at home, out in public, wherever you find yourself. So that when they accuse you, and they will, there won't be any proof and they won't be able to get away with it. And in the day of visitation, when God does pull the trigger on some of these end times happenings, they will know that they're the God you talked about and who filled your life and who gave you that perspective is real. And so really, I, I mean, it, it sounds like, can't we do more? Well, of course you can do more in a free society. I, I'm not talking about, you know, checking out of society. But the first thing we need to do is get God's house in order and be Christians and live the Christian life so that people see the filling of the Holy Spirit, that they understand the forgiveness of sins, those kinds of things. So uh, that's, that's our, assignment, our assignment from the beginning. Lord, what do you want me to do? Walk with me. Learn from me. I began this good work in you. I will finish it. You're going to become like me one day. You'll awaken my likeness. Uh, anticipate my coming, and just do the things I tell you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit which I've given you. That's what the Lord requires of us.